Hello, and welcome to What's Unfamiliar, the show that remembers Volumes 3 and 4 of Blow Up Presents Exclusive Blend. I can't say Right. <laughs> That's easy Last for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> Volumes 3 and 4 of Blow Up Presents Exclusive Blend. Imagine how funny that would be if I'd said it correctly the first time. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, and no one has ever seemed to, is musician, producer, and internet radio broadcaster, Andy Lewis. Andy, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, I do a show on Soho Radio, which you can find on SohoRadioLondon.com, 12 till 2 every Saturday, and on their Play Again Mixcloud catch-up thingy as well at any time of the day or night. And I'm also normally to be found at the moment in um, manor houses in Kent with nice microphones and recording equipment making strange-sounding indie folk records. Can't say fairer than that. Your first choice isn't a strange-sounding indie folk record, but it's the theme music from it. It's a very strange record, so let's just hear a bit from it. Higher than high, boys, there's lights in the sky. It's a low and goodbye when the dead devil aeronauts are flying your way, boys. You might even say it's tomorrow today, because the speed of an aeronaut's a fast Okay, that was a bit of the theme from The Aeronauts by Rick Jones. Yes. So, Andy, <laughs> what was The Aeronauts? The Aeronauts was this... When I was about three and we were watching our first television set, I was absolutely fascinated by this programme with these sleek, shiny, supersonic planes that went to all sorts of exotic locations with these incredibly sort of Thunderbirds-y, test pilot-type characters. And I can't even remember their names. I have subsequently found out it was a French programme and it was um, originally called Les Chevaliers en Ciel which I think means the Knights of the Air and they were and it was about these two French test pilots working for the French government who found themselves embroiled in all kinds of plots and things like that but it was basically an excuse for the French to show off the fruits of their aircraft industry which were you know far in excess of what this country was producing at the time so as a kid I was absolutely intrigued by this programme and I think because it was sort of flashy planes and sort of exotic locations and sort of tough muscular men doing tough muscular things and and the the kind of things that a a three-year-old boy gets really into but the thing that stuck in my head more than anything and I I, I go back to this a lot about things that I remember from being a kid is the music because the music was absolutely brilliant it's this kind of it wasn't quite funky it wasn't quite Mm. psychedelic it wasn't quite anything really and I just remembered this kind of music and for years I didn't know who it was by or anything like that at all and then you know fast forward to the early 90s and I get Corduroy's first album and one of the tracks on there for all the world sounds I'm sure I've heard this before I mean a lot of people play that with Corduroy's first album and I can't remember exactly what it was I was I was thinking and then you know a a few weeks later I'm rooting through records in one of the the, the places in Watford that I used to go rooting for records in and I found Rick Jones theme to the aeronauts and suddenly I had a flashback to Mm. being a a young child and watching this program on a, a, a crack old black and white television set and the first time the needle hit the groove it was like oh my god it's that song and and it sounds like corduroy but with vocals and it's like it's wonderful and and there you are so that's that that's a record that i didn't even know existed when i was a kid had i known it existed i would have badgered my parents for it in the same way that i badgered them for the theme tune to rupert the bear and to that thing that used that scott joplin thing and, and all sorts of other degeneration game and all the other things eventually my parents would buy me sort of BBC sports themes albums and and the songs from Rainbow and all this kind of thing, you know. And so I, you know, I'd get all these things that I was getting obsessed by because even in those days I was obsessed by the music. Well, that's. I mean, I was going to say just to digress slightly. Corduroy did that really brilliantly. That they would take these half-remembered tunes and yeah. build something new. Because there's one, I think it is on the first album again, where they've taken the middle bit of the Ronnie Hazelhurst sort of single version, of the two Ronnies theme, where it's got yeah. the starting theme and the end theme. It's got this weird sort of funk bridging bit. 
bit where it goes like and they use that I mean all that was just sheer genius well, but... the, the, the other big one of course and it, it took me ages to work out what it was but again on one of these record buying expeditions finding a copy of the theme tune to General Hospital um, yes which is <laughs> it's that it's, it's theme from High Havoc yeah I mean it totally and one of the wonderful memories that I have of getting into music and sort of many many years later doing a gig with Corduroy the first time I ever did a gig with Corduroy we were supporting them when they played at the Jazz Cafe it must have been about 1995 or something like that and we sound checked with a version of Hot Rod by Boys Wonder bearing in mind that Ben really? and Scott yes. had been but we just played it and we did it absolutely straight and note perfect and they were watching and they broke into sort of ironic applause and went, shameless, shameless. And I just thought at that point, OK, we've arrived. You know, we can do no wrong. That was a time, though, when children's programmes had amazing music in them, not just the themes, but, you know, throughout them. So one of my obsessions is the album of Ragtime, the BBC children's programme. It's, it's full of Philly soul stuff. It's The ones that seemed to have the best themes were like the aeronauts. They were the dubbed, imported programmes. Yeah. They'd had, somebody had to do a new theme for over here. Mm. You got things like the Flashing Blade well, theme is amazing. Robinson Crusoe, yeah. White Horses, they were yeah. all fantastic. And the Aeronauts, yeah. bizarrely by Rick Jones, you know, Yoffy from Finger Bobs, is like you say, it's not quite funk, it's not quite psychedelic. I but, don't know what it is. Well, there's a funny thing about him. He he was another one of these people that you'd think he'd risen without trace, mm. but no, he'd had a stab at making. Now, what was it called? Cameraman. There's a seven inch that he did mm. in about 1966, which is very sort of singer songwritery. It's the flowers of mine, and that. Well, yeah, there's yeah. that as well. And there's a few. There's a few of them where you, you're kind of you're aware that you know he's one of these people that was that was on the scene and kind of probably drifted into doing stuff like that as a way of making some money because heaven's above. But here's the thing: the B side of the theme tune to Aeronauts is called Love Bug. And it's wonderful. It's like a proper early 70s pop song. You can imagine it being the opening titles mm. to some daft film where, you know, you've got a guy coming out of a, you know, walking through a park with two girls on his arm. <laughs> it's a bit sort of Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart sort of thing. I don't know if anybody knows that film. I do. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. But but that sort of thing, because it's, it's, it, it's kind of got that slightly sort of sinister, you know, things aren't quite as rosy as you think they're going to be kind of vibe to it. But yeah, mm. so what a lovely... A lovely seven inch to have is that it's tremendous well one amazing thing i found out just before we move on to your next choice is do you know who wrote the original comic book that the french version of the aeronauts was based on oh no i don't and i've got a horrible feeling it's going to be somebody like it's going to be like the people who did asterisk it is because <laughs> yeah. yes. <laughs> I, I just i just had a vision of it being something that's kind of like amazing <laughs> and then you've got i'm just thinking that, that you know at the time you know the french everybody talks about britain and you know the sort of reinvention of britain after the Second World War was oh, David Egerton waxes lyrical about this in his new book, which is absolutely amazing, by the way. But the thing that you forget is that in France, at the same time, there is this similar sort of tranche of nation building going on. You know, de Gaulle's just sort of like got back into power and he's doing all this stuff. And the French aircraft industry is absolutely at the height of its pomp and they're developing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And they're about to try and launch a cat into space as well. I mean, the only nation to try and launch a cat into space are the French. Now, I think I've got this right. They printed up all the commemorative stamps and everything about Felix, the first French space cat. <laughs> and the night before he was due to blast off, he escaped. <laughs> and, and, and they had to find another one to put in his place. Luckily, they had a couple of other ones that they could sort of like get in there. But the first cat in French history to ascend into orbit it wasn't the one that they publicised with all the photographs and stuff. It was it was the stunt mm. double. But I think that's just typical cat behaviour. <laughs> he looked at the rocket, well, I'm not getting in there, and did the off. Well, only a cat could pull that off but you've given me a brilliant link into your next choice which involves an unlikely person in space and it does involve a book but i'm not sure you're going to recommend this quite as highly so <laughs> let's just hear the author in conversation how many languages can you speak i can speak altogether three of the space languages one is venusian the second is kruger the planet kruger 60b yes. and pluto what about plutonian what does that sound like plutonian is how did you learn these languages? These languages have been a gift sent from me from the actual people by rays. And even at this moment, although you cannot see them, 
they are sending these rays down to help me. By some mental process That's or some, or some, mecha some no, mechanical process? No, it's by some mechanical process. But apart from this, I can't tell you how it's done. What about Martian? Martian, I don't know much about. OK, that was the unmistakable tones of Patrick Moore, not playing his xylophone for once. Andy, what was The Spy in Space by Patrick Moore? OK, this was the first volume of a series of books featuring British teenage astronaut Scott Saunders. And I've never seen any of the other ones, no. ever. Apart from this one first... I mean, I don't know who published it. It might have been Armada or somebody like that. But I remember being bought it by my parents on a particularly damp and drizzly holiday, of which we had many. And being totally enthralled, not just by the idea of here was this, you know, British boy who'd won a scholarship to go and study on one of the constellation of international space stations that were orbiting the Earth at the time, but the fact that he got to do all these things like spacewalk and, you know, there were all sorts of things that he'd, and, and a huge mystery to solve. There was this one of the stations had gone dark and they got no reason of knowing what was going on over there. And they, they thought that it might have been infiltrated by some terrorist organisation called Alpha, presumably to join Alpha you had to go on some sort of course, I don't know, there's, a, there's some, something for the theologians listening I mean it was an absolutely brilliant thing I mean, for, apart from anything else, the Europeans had their own station of course mm. you know, the British had their own station there was the American station there was a Russian station and then there was this mysterious other station that was supposedly sort of international and cosmopolitan or something mm. but it was, you know, some strange things were going on there. Now I haven't read the book in years and I'm just remembering it. It was like Dan Dare or something like that. It was written in the same kind of way and there was all sorts of... It was vaguely scientific. There was a sort of vaguely technological background to it. All of it seemed plausible and it was set in, oh, I don't know, the far-off time of like 1988 or something. So it wasn't all that far in the future. So you could kind of imagine if the impetus had carried on in the space race and had Britain not cancelled its own space programme and the European one hadn't worked as well as it did and the Americans had given up on doing the things that they did. I mean, you, you can imagine that in the early to mid-80s there would have been some kind of constellation of international space stations that possibly ran some sort of further education programme for lucky children. And so as a sort of like six-year-old boy reading, seven-year-old boy, however old I was when I got it, reading this thing, it sort of inspired me a little bit. You know, even if some of it did seem a little far-fetched. There's a lovely moment in where, of course, one of the professors on board the space station, not only is he an amazing mathematician and things, but he also speaks Icelandic, which comes in very useful when the Icelandic... <laughs> <laughs> a teenage space cadet is able to send a message to him in code when inevitably they all get kidnapped mm. by the shadowy agents over on the darkened station. Oh, it's a tremendous thing, but I've never I've never come across anyone else who's ever read any of them. I've never seen any of the other books. I mean, I suppose I could Google them. I could go on abe.com or something and try and find them, but where's the fun in that? Well, I tried Googling them. I couldn't find any others <laughs> apart from this one. Wonderful! But what was interesting <laughs> was all the reviews that I found of it, because the actual book itself found really hard to find. It seems to me that it might have reflected a lot of Patrick Moore's personal views in some ways. The Absolutely. women seem to know their place. The mm. men smoke pipes. Yes. You know, a shadowy, I assume, Eastern Bloc space <laughs> station. Which I'm sure he was very concerned about. You know. I mean, I mean the, the whole thing is absolute nonsense, of course. Um, and it does reflect the prejudices of Patrick Moore, a man who we've subsequently discovered had an awful lot of. He was as sort of like broad in his prejudices as he was in his waistline. He was a, a strange and insane person, but as a lot of incredibly clever people were at the time and as a lot of the people who ended up presenting shows mm. that were popular science programmes were. I mean, you, no, and I'm not making any excuses for him, but potentially a few reasons, if you will. During the 30s, when he was sort of studying and getting into his stride and things like that, much of the technological and technocratic impetus was coming from the right. Yeah. You know, we forget all this. You know, we forget that things like aeronautical research and fast cars and powerboats and all that kind of thing generally speaking it was the toffs that were doing it because they were the only ones who had the money and yes you'd have your sort of cloth capped sort of like digby types working on them in the background sort of like making them go faster and all that kind of thing you know but they were very much the other ranks the mm. people that took the glory were very much the people who were already fairly high up the social order and i think patrick moore comes out of that world and it's mm. a world he's trying to carry forward you know this idea that if you're clever it doesn't matter yeah it's a little bit patronizing but in, in, in you know the book is 
isn't quite as sort of scathing about people of other races as you might think it is. If, mm. if I remember rightly, that generally if it, it treats everybody that's managed to achieve the level of technological and sort of educational prowess that you need in order to become some sort of space cadet. Assuming you've got that far, you are all equal, but mm. therefore you're all superior to everybody else. You know, <laughs> And that's possibly where he's coming from. Yeah, I mean, it's from 1977. And, you know, there is still that thing then of, I mean, I immediately, when you started talking then about the division between the people driving the technological advances and the people who actually did the nuts and bolts work. Maybe you think of Doomwatch, the 70 series, where you've got, yeah. you know, these incredibly posh scientists and the guy who works the computer, the secretary who often figures out things that sort of with straightforward logic they're eluding them, you know, Robert Powell's character, are all quite working class, really. You know, and it's you, that divide is it's, in there. It's the division yeah. between the people that think about it and the people who go out and do it. There's a certain element of that that creeps into the tomorrow people as well yes. because you've got what's his name is it sort of like the tough who sort of like falls in with them and he's the guy who actually goes out and does the duffing <laughs> yeah, up because yeah. they're all too sort of like, cool. yeah. <laughs> we can jaunt we can do all of this yeah. but you know you can't have them in a fight you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you know hopeless and that sort of mentality is still there you've got your, your homo superior but sort of mm. propping them up you've still yeah. got the people that are you know that are actually getting out there and getting mm. their hands dirty and well i've always loved for me the tomorrow people was never the same after the first series where you've got kenny the tough east end black kid yeah. they actually went out and found a proper tough east end black kid who couldn't act bless him <laughs> but i've always remembered this one scene where goes he's dead chief absolutely <laughs> <laughs> no emotion in it at all no i mean again you know the ambition of all those i talk a lot about this and it's not being nostalgic because obviously the, the you know when, when you see things when you're a kid you know you're fascinated by them because of what they are but the more you appreciate what went into making those programs and the kind mm. of mentality that sort of was was driving it and the sort of imagination that you had to have in the first place and the, the vision you know this sort of idea that there's big ideas in programs yeah. like the tomorrow people and yeah in spy in space there's big ideas in that there's a wonderful moment where one of the characters in it is talking condescendingly about you know these people who want to keep people on earth and sort sort out the world's problems first there's this organization called keep our men on earth who's a, who, <laughs> keep a, our a, men, men on, on earth. earth exactly yeah. you know <laughs> and, and it's basically that you know they're saying so what do you mean they're like these terrorists out there oh no 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 the keep our men on earth people they're all mad but they're sincere no the terrorists mm. are a, dif- a different yeah. breed altogether these cowardly uh, and even even calling them alpha you know so I'm giving yeah. you a sort of hint of you know like thrush or smirch or whatever you know it's, just, <laughs> it's tremendous work but uh, Patrick Moore Spy in Space I'd like to think that I'd know exactly where I put that book and in my mind's eye I can see it on the shelf where I left it as a kid but I mean, that's four years ago now. I mean, heaven's <laughs> above. It's probably still at my mum and dad's. I mean, there's a when my nephew was a lot younger, I noticed that, you know, to my joy, he was sort of going through all this old stuff that I'd had and yeah. discovering it. And I just thought, that's wonderful. That's kind of what it's all about. Well, you if know. you start smoking a pipe and well, going well, into well, space, you know, <laughs> <laughs> playing the xylophone. Absolutely. You know. <laughs> putting on weight at an, <laughs> an alarming rate. And we'll know exactly what he's been up to. But no, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if your next choice might have been aboard one of their missions. So... Again, let's just hear him in action. Okay, that sight, those sounds were not made by the Pink Floyd, but by Sir Galaxy, who was a <laughs> robot made apparently by Mattel in 1979. Andy, yes. what? This is a very odd and slightly sinister story. Okay, my parents were incredibly liberal-minded people. They had an awful lot of... They had a very, very wide-ranging social circle of people. My family background is basically... I, I grew up in a vicarage. My father was a vicar. My mother's a teacher. So I'm surrounded by this incredible... You know, he's very liberal-minded, you know, very educational. Everything's kind of like... Has to have a, an educational reason. Into their life comes this character who I'm not going to say what his name was because he's dead, but there are people who know him who probably wouldn't know what he was in addition to being a music teacher which is a rampaging and very predatory paedophile okay now bearing in mind i'm probably sort of nine my sister is seven into our family circle comes this guy bearing gifts 
what's he doing? One of the things he presents us with to play with is Sir Galaxy. It's an absolutely incredible thing. It is a radio-controlled robot that you can send around the place, but better than that, it's got a built-in walkie-talkie. You can send messages via it, and you can listen to what the people are doing at the other end. So, into the downstairs front room it comes, this thing, and it's like, oh, wow, hello. What's this Sir Galaxy? What does he do? Oh, he speaks. Lights flash. Stuff happens. My God, this is incredible. There it sits in the corner of the room while me and my sister are carrying on. Meanwhile, in the other room, this particular guy has got the receiving end on having a listen to us doing whatever we're doing and probably getting all kinds of kicks listening to me and my sister doing what children do but we had it in the house for ages and i discovered that it was the walkie-talkie on it ran at 49 megahertz neither any children of a certain age at that particular point in the late 70s early 80s the 49 megahertz walkie-talkie that was the gift that kept on giving mm. especially if there were a lot of people in the area that all had them and you could form some kind of radio network talking to people that you couldn't even see i mean you think the internet is fantastic but there's nothing better than sort of like usually the day or two after christmas standing there with a walkie-talkie and suddenly discovering that the people up the road have got one as well and you could just about hear them and you could send messages to each other it's absolutely tremendous so that was sir galaxy it was a, a very very i mean it's sort of silvery gray thing with flashing lights and disembodied voice that was being beamed in from the other room where the remote control was and the, and the handset and of course realizing now that it was transmitting all the while that we were talking to somebody who was probably getting quite excited at the prospect for reasons that I can only begin to fathom. It's a little bit like the sort of like the Alexa or the, the, mm -hmm. the Google smart speaker of its day really. You know, it's it's you know reporting back to some sinister organization. Yeah, I mean there is that thing now where people say they've just been talking about, you know, where they like to book a holiday and it comes up as a suggestion on Facebook. That's a bit worrying. So uh, I hope so Galaxy isn't involved with Mark Zuckerberg. Well I hope not as well. But you can see where the inspiration for that kind of thing comes from and the, the other thing that it, it so obviously is in retrospect it's an attempt to kind of like do a knockoff of r2d2 yes, isn't it it's, yeah. it's a kind of cash in star wars toy that isn't and mm. it's kind of within the reach of people who don't want to spend money on an actual working replica of r2d2 <laughs> you know it's 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 not quite exactly what you wanted but there you are well you also mentioned the doll that your sister had where you you quote you have reunited with the voice box from it <laughs> yes i mean this was a thing again again one of these sort of rainy holidays that we kept going on on i probably probably the same one that i always bought the spy in space but my sister got this doll and you held the head and you pulled the body of it down and as you let the head <laughs> as you let the body back up it would say things that's like, horrific yeah, just the body going back up. <laughs> body goes back up on a bit of string and it would say things like i can fit in your pocket and you know <laughs> i'm so silly uh, you know and, and are you silly too you know i'm pretty tricky uh, and the, way, the reason I can remember all these things is because she would play with this blow. Carry me, I'm portable. That's the other thing it used to say. <laughs> I, and, 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 it, and it was this thing. Anyway, years and years later, my long-standing, some say long-suffering musical collaborator, Pete Twyman, who I've been in many bands with and who I still, you know, he's my go-to person to involve on most, you know, pretty much everything that I do, really. Brilliant guitarist, brilliant keyboard player, writes great songs, you know, you name it, he's got it. Including the head section of this doll, which he then dismantled and got the voice box bit out. And, you, and there it was, you know, pulling this sort of like little bit of thing and then letting it go back in on its thing. It was, I'm so silly. Hey. You know, and, and suddenly I'm transported back to this sort of moment in time where my sister is sitting there with this scary thing and it somehow looks less scary as a pile of working parts. <laughs> but, you know, it's an, an incredible... That sounds like a toy version of one of those like 70s films where, you know, they'd have the cerebral cortex of a Nazi hooked up to some bubbling test that's, tubes that that's, were talking. That's you know. exactly what it reminded me of. I mean, it's... it's uh, Now, there is... Oh, is that an episode of Wonder Woman? It is, isn't it? Yes. Gaunt's brain, it's called, where there's this kind of... Yeah, and I, I, I only remember that now that we're talking. My goodness me. But I just remember it. This this sort of jar with, with, with bubbles and this sort of wires coming out of it. And, and you know, when Brian Matthew passed away, I think he'd actually died years ago and that what was actually in the BBC was that with his head in, with wires coming off it. And, and it was the job of all the various people like, you know, sort of, you know, Roger the vocalist Bowman and Phil the collector's worm to sort of inject neuropeptides into the... Was that why the eight of the Beatles 
was always the same every week. <laughs> it was always if I needed someone. Yes, possibly because there was some sort of it locked into some yeah. sort of strange kind of recycling mode. Yeah. You know, it was probably all linked up to a BBC yeah. Micro, of course. That yeah. was the only A to Z that had about fifty-four million parts. Well, do you know that Mike Smith started off on the A to Z of the Beatles in nineteen eighty, whenever it was he started DJing on Radio One. Really? And yeah, because I heard the first episode of his show, and I remember him saying the one way to guarantee a long-running gig at the BBC is start something that's going to take you years to complete <laughs> the A to Z of the Beatles. And I can't remember how far he got before they packed that in, you know. Well, I was going to say we've got one less, I was going to say slightly less disturbing story from each other, but I'm not sure how it's going to play out because you wanted to mention watching the Goodies episode South Africa with your parents. Yes. Yeah, no, this was something that when they reissued, or they were about to reissue the box set of, mm. of every episode of the Goodies, there was a, a flurry of interest around it. And of course, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to go online and have a look because I, I, I want to sort of get hold of this and sort of satisfy my curiosity because Wikipedia tells us that the version of the episode South Africa was only ever transmitted once and it was on at 10 to 9 on a Tuesday night and my parents were very liberal and they were very sort of kind of let us do what we wanted but I tell you what there was absolutely no way that they'd let us stay up at 10 to 9 on a school night not when I was five but I remember watching it because I remember we were watching it and my mum and dad found some of it funny some of it disturbing but they were kind of answering my questions about what was going on because obviously they were committed supporters of the anti-apartheid movement and stuff like that so some of it they thought was hysterically funny and some of it they thought were profoundly disturbing you know the idea that as soon as all the uh, the black South Africans have emigrate because you know they can't stand apartheid anymore the white South Africans have to find somebody else to blame mm. so they blame everybody that's shorter than a certain height of course this means that Bilotti gets it in the <laughs> neck along with all kinds of jockeys and other sort of people that are much shorter and, and aside from the idea that you know as well as me watching it around that time Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews certainly watched it because that whole jockey's sketch from mm. Big Train didn't come from nowhere no. I'll tell you that so I distinctly remember watching it and it wasn't for years until the BBC genome thing that I discovered that actually it had been repeated and Wikipedia was wrong yeah and I, Wikipedia I, was wrong yes, there's a shock I know it isn't a surprise <laughs> you know they don't ask the right people and and so yes there it is black and white it was on it it was on at something like 10 to 7 it was on after nationwide when they mm. used to be so obviously somebody at the BBC thought it was okay to, to, to put out at a pre-watershed time yeah and there we all were laughing along to you know all kinds of what is now considered exceedingly derogatory language which I think as I think I've mentioned before on another place there wasn't the level of it wasn't even political correctness, but the idea that you could watch and find somebody calling somebody something quite derogatory now amusing and then go on an anti-apartheid demonstration mm. or picket the South African embassy or something like that. It didn't seem like there was a big moral gulf between the two back then. Mm. I mean, maybe that's just me as a kid looking at it and people were deeply horrified. But I think that, generally speaking, the goodies were the goodies. Yes, you know, absolutely. They, they, they were actually... A, the forefront of a lot of quite interesting progressive opinion mm. even if it didn't always look like yeah. it but i love i mean that the whole thing with radio goodies which is one of my favorite television programs ever yeah where they, where they start a pirate radio station and the only record they've got is a walk, <laughs> walk in the black, black forest <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit like my show on soho radio really and, and it, it gets more and more extreme and it's a complete satire as i now mm. know of the people that were behind pirate radio in the 60s the supposedly golden age of loving awareness and all that and it's all absolutely insane people like Ronan O'Reilly who's a big sort of like hyper-capitalist hates the British establishment hates communism there's all these people like Major Oliver Smedley and all of that and then there's sinister organisations like Garner Ted Armstrong's Worldwide mm. Church of God yes um, they are terrifying I've actually heard ter- some of them now yeah. I know I mean like, this, is, this, was, this is another thing I could talk about for ages but mm. I probably and I probably could um, and probably will Garner Ted Armstrong's <laughs> Worldwide Church of God's UK headquarters was in Brickett Wood just outside Watford right. and when it closed in the late 70s they had an auction of all the recording equipment and all the stuff that was in there and it was around the time that my father was starting the Watford and District Talking newspaper for blind people and so onto the market came all this cut price recording tape microphones all this kind of thing he went up there and bought a load of it all these world tomorrow reel to reel tapes which had angry Garner Ted Armstrong shouty sermons on which then became the stock tape that you used to go and interview people for the talking newspaper <laughs> with so you'd be going through it and you'd say oh yeah 
yes, Lady Mayor, thank you very much. And then suddenly you'd have this mad preacher, sort of like, which you'd have to edit out and sort of make sure you didn't make it to the final cut. But the best story of all was that there was someone else at that auction who was bidding on equipment there. And mm. it was punk musician Reckless Eric. No. Yes, because what he was after was some of the studio gear, like the um, the, the broadcast microphones, but mm. especially the broadcast limiters, which ended up in his studio in the south of France. Right. And it's where my mate um, Robert Rotipper recorded one of his albums, and he, he'd asked Reckless where he got these things from. And he said, oh, it's from this religious thing in, near Watford, the Worldwide Church of God or whatever it was called. And I, when he told me this, I just had a vision of my father sort of in his clerical gear, sort of trying to bid on all this stuff and Reckless Eric. <laughs> You know, in his pub rock finery, sort of like outbidding him at every turn because he got some money from Stiff or Chiswick or whatever. And all my dad had was some of the contents of a, a bowl he'd shook in the town centre, you know, trying to raise funds. Well, just before we move on to your next choice, you know what the most annoying thing I've ever seen on Wikipedia is? I don't know if it's still there, but on the page about the Magic Roundabout, it says that the other three children... Basil, Paul and Rosalie never appeared in it. And I kept, in the days when I was stupid enough to edit Wikipedia, I kept putting, changing that and saying they did appear in it. And people say, please provide evidence. Like, the evidence is I used to watch it. And they were in it. They weren't always in it, but they were in it sometimes. And it just went on and on. I thought, the memories of people who actually watched, you know, these things are worthless compared to some 15-year-old in Texas yeah, going, I know expert. the rules. Yeah, yeah, not exactly. in that voice because they're in Texas. But. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends whereabouts yeah. in Texas you are. But yeah, I mean, yeah, we've had the Aeronauts, which was dubbed from the original Magic Roundabout boss as well. But sometimes over here, we just ripped off things ourselves, which brings us around to your next choice. No motion picture of our time has ever unleashed shocked spectacle of such scope and realism as up from the depths of prehistoric mystery rages, Virgo. The headlines of the world blaze the fabulous story of this monster from another age, catapulted from some vast sub-ocean cavern by unprecedented volcanic action. Okay, that was the trailer for Gorgo. I don't think you need to really explain what it is, Andy, but please do so. Gorgo is Britain's proud contribution to the canon of monster movies. It's a little bit late in the day for stop-motion animation, but it's one of those moments where people think that it's kind of this really amazing thing and we're going to do it and it's going to be fabulous and no-one else has done one. You know, Certainly not based around the idea that there's a this remote Scottish fishing community. I think it's Scottish or Irish. I can't remember. It's Scottish, that's it. A Scottish fishing community who pull up this monster in their fishing boats <laughs> and it's acquired by a, a sort of showman stroke. You know, one of these kind of people who's sort of like trying to make something of everything. And he, he basically decides we're going to bring it to London and have it as a tourist attraction. OK, so you've got this sort of like this huge monster that's kind of like, you know, terrorising the place. And they get it on a boat and they chain it down and they have to keep hosing it down to sort of provide it, keep it moist so that it doesn't die because they want to exhibit it. And they put it on at Battersea Funfair. Now, OK, we're talking this film I saw once. You have to bear in mind, this was a film that was I only saw it once. And it was on my grand and granddad's flickering 405 line black and white television, which they had until the day that they turned off the 405 line transmitter. So that was in 1985, mm. possibly something like that. And they were probably the last people. They could only watch BBC One. That was the only programme that was being broadcast on it. OK, there it was. And so you were limited whenever you went to stay with them or went to stay in there house which was an amazing house in the Lake District on the shores of Windermere ironically in the shadow of the Claife television transmitter which they erected to bring 625 line high definition television to the Windermere area they were having the, the signal was being beamed in from Leeds or somewhere like that and everything interfered with it if a powerboat went up the lake it would smear the screen with static if you put the kettle on in the other room it would kind of like cause the picture to fragment <laughs> and break up and everything it was a nightmare what anything through this kind of like I mean it was years before I realised that you know they didn't always play football in the snow it's just what it looked <laughs> like when you were watching sort of match of the day or grandstand or something like that anyway one evening I mean, it may have been a Saturday evening I can't remember this film came on Gorgo it was the only thing that was on that was worth watching and there we all sat down to watch it on this flickering television and my goodness me what a thing and of course I was absolutely enthralled by it because at the time you know the early 60s I think it was made late 50s early 60s it had all this stuff in it that still looked it looked London still kind of looked like it did 
then, if you see what I mean. Mm. The, the transformation of London didn't really come along till the, the 80s, really. I mean, things did happen in the 60s yeah. and 70s, but the real changes, you know, everything still looked kind of recognisable. The fire engine still had those mm. ladders on with the big wheels on them yeah. and all of that. And so to see this monster in the middle of London, in, in, in Battersea Park, sort of like being gawped at by people, and there's this small kid who wants to set it free because he thinks it's unkind that this monster should be chained up and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, much to the horror of the authorities, they discovered that it's actually a baby uh-huh. and that the real monster is on its way vengefully coming to collect its young the mother is coming in search of it and so they send the entire NATO fleet after it there's this wonderful <laughs> moment where you see all these planes taking off what's supposed to be a British aircraft carrier and it's obviously not it's American because that's where they got the footage from and there's a, another wonderful thing where they're trying to close some sort of non-existent submarine boom across the Thames and heaven knows I've googled this and there wasn't one in the late 50s is such a thing strictly speaking necessary in a world bristling with H-bombs as <laughs> Kenneth Williams would have said but anyway Gorgo and up the Thames comes this monster and everybody London's being evacuated and there's this absolute panic and there's this you know this kind of preacher with a big placard saying repent the end is nigh and you see him, <laughs> you see him standing there and the crowd sort of submerge him and then he's lying there with his placard broken saying the end is nigh and, oh, it's just absolutely tremendous anyway eventually you know the, the monster gets rescued and they go wading off into the sort of like tower bridge gets destroyed of course it does and all sorts of horrible things happen to london but it's a film that is so imprinted on my memory that there's all these bits in it i remember and it's something that i know it's available on a pirated dvd because i know someone who had it and i watched it one other time i've only seen it twice once in 1970 whenever it was 77 and once about three or four years ago and in the intervening period of course my critical faculties um, <laughs> have been somewhat modified and uh, mm. it is an absolute load of old tosh but a very entertaining way of spending a, a, an hour and a half and lovely time capsule of a, of a period where British popular culture it wasn't quite in the lead mm. it was still kind of playing catch up but it was desperately doing things in a way that no other country could you know in other words slightly shabbily mm. uh, <laughs> slightly well, second rate isn't it interesting that there was a sense years ago that when a film was on TV you know, because they used to build them as the big film yeah, and so on. It yeah. was an event people remembered it. I mean, you know, there were things that I could point to. I think it was during the White Album. The Beatles abandoned the recording session because somebody said the girl can't help it. It's going to be on TV because yeah. something else had been cancelled. Mm. There was the League of Gentlemen kind of met because they all remembered watching the same Hammer films in double bills yeah. on the BBC. But I remember, you know, when I was a kid, things like if something like Doc Savage, The Man of Brums had been on or Fathom, I remember, of all films yes. being on yes. early evening on the BBC but the, the school the next day was mm. all anyone talked about was the film that had been on yeah. I don't think that happened I don't think that's happened for a long time oh, probably no. since VHS really. well probably not since the advent of video but I, I would I would also venture to suggest that it was quite often the first time they'd ever been shown on television yeah. because I remember it was a really big event when when Eagles Dare was on for the first time where Eagles mm. Dare rather and we were all basically brought in from the garden to watch it my dad said there's this film on you're going to absolutely love it and I did and it's the first time it ever been shown on television and it was a big deal and I suppose it had been made what 10 years previously or something so there was this kind of 10 year lag Mm. between making the film and the rights coming up for it to be shown on the television and so you would make a big I mean do you remember there were billboard adverts for James Bond films on LWT or Thames I remember Gone with the Wind I think billboards yeah and that was first shown I remember there was a big billboard advert that went up when Diamonds Are Forever was going to be shown again sort of like mid to late 70s and mm. they, they were, there were two or three of them that went up all round the dome roundabout in Watford and it had something like you know the KGB wants him stabbed to death the mafia wants him shot to death and as for the women dot 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 you know <laughs> James Bond 7.30 Diamonds Are Forever and it was a big deal you yeah. know, they, and, and every Christmas there'd be a big deal made about the film and of course if there was a big film on ITV mm. if we were on holiday at the Grand and Granddad's they could only pick up BBC One mm. it passed us completely by it genuinely was I mean you don't get film seasons anymore do you know I mean people go on about you know they'd be like Channel 4 Scorsese and have his face in sort of like silhouette or something but the ones I remember were things like the, the one I always say about was at Christmas on the BBC you'd see a Michael Caine film in the Radio Times look down the list and think is it going to say at the bottom and say Michael Caine appeared in Pulp on Tuesday like yeah. they're showing all of them Brilliant. that happened a yes. few times well, but there, there that, was... that's all gone that whole has... phenomenon but do you remember and again this is going back a few years and it's got to be 
It's around 1977-78 they showed the four big Beatles feature films on consecutive weeks. They did on it the again BBC. after Lennon was murdered, which is the one I remember. Yeah, yeah but they yeah. did it before that as yes, well. Yes, yeah, um, and it was and it was incredible, you know, because again you you grow up thinking that the Beatles are still this presence mm. that are kind of like almost they've passed on into popular folklore even yeah. then. Unless it be it's not been seen from that day to this. Well, I know yeah. this is the, that's a scary thing. Unless you were on YouTube the other night, because it was all <laughs> on there, of course, which is. Um, yeah. Yeah. The other thing that's kind of laid waste to the the idea yeah. that you know that the mm. television has is the ultimate sort of like <laughs> showplace for these kind of things. Yeah. Well, we're moving on to a very different kind of event television for your next choice, which um, I'm hoping I will have found a clip in usable quality by the time this goes out. If not, it's in unusable quality, but that kind of suits it a bit more, really. <laughs> Okay, this is something I remember very, very fondly, and weirdly, I ended up turning down the chance to talk about it on television a couple of years ago, but that's another story. Andy, The Secret of Steel City. This is something that I have incredibly fond memories of, because I became slightly obsessed by it. It was a very late entry into series imported from Eastern yeah. Europe, and it wasn't even dubbed. They didn't even go down the route of dubbing it. They basically narrated the story. Mm. I can't remember who it was. It was Andrew Sachs. Was it Andrew Sachs? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, that, so I remember noticing that, thinking, mm. that's, that's Manuel. Like, when there was a small child. Yeah. That was yeah. disturbing. Yeah. yeah, but, I mean, what was disturbing about it was the, the, the graphic detail in which the kind of dystopian world of Steel City was brought to life. Bearing in mind this was a kids' programme mm. that was going out at, I don't know, five o'clock on an afternoon. One of the early episodes has this sort of like this shell falling off of a, tr- a railway truck being driven through a town, mm. trundling down the steps yeah. and then detonating, putting this sort of gas out that freezes everything it touches. And so you've got all these people who are basically frozen to death. The pianola in the corner suddenly cracks and freezes. All the food freezes on the table. And all these people basically die. And this is at you know, five o'clock on mm. a Wednesday afternoon or something. There was that aspect of it, the kind of gothic sort of steampunk vibe of it mm. all, you know, and the, and the sort of the, the giant gun that was going to fire these shells into, what was the other place? Was it something like Fortunia or something Fortuna, like that? Fortuna, yeah. Fortuna, yeah. that's right. I, I, again, I'm sort of like going back into the mists of my memory. Wasn't the whole plot around, was it something like the, 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 the mayor of Fortuna sent his son or someone on a secret mission over, he had to cross the river. Yes. Because it was, this, 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 the river divided the two cities, basically. There was one on one side where everyone was kind of like well hey it's all lovely and on the other side it was kind of like I don't know Scunthorpe Steelworks or something it was this horrible horrible place full of kind of like slums and sort of like soldiers and sort of it was very kind of like militaristic and Eastern European the chap in charge of this steel city was called Professor Janus that I do remember mm. and he had this lair in a kind of like a Bond villain but a kind of steampunk Bond villain with yes. kind of like that sort of like lattice work flooring and you know, all sort of ironwork step ladders mm. going everywhere and big sort of like girders and stuff like that. And I just remember thinking, wow, this is fabulous. And I also remember thinking, wow, this doesn't half look like the kids' playground over the road as well. Because it did. It had the same, those slides that you used right, to get, yeah, which had yeah. that kind of, those steps that you went up. Yeah. And then the big sort of chute that you went down. And, and that's what kind of like, it, 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 you know, for, for something that was supposed to have this sort of existential threat to everything that was good in the world, to which the gun that fired the frozen stuff gas mm. it didn't half look like an, a, a sort of an adventure playground really and that's the other thing that kind of made me realize it, it was kind of like trying to talk about quite horrible things mm. but in a kind of visual and where was it from it was it was it was from somewhere like Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia yeah. yeah and so it was talking about these things in a way that kids could understand yeah not, not knowing any Czech and not having seen it in the original language I wouldn't be able to know what the the actual language was whether it was kind of like young adult sophisticated or kiddie I don't know I'm tending towards young adult sophisticated certainly the way it came across on television was that this is something for kids but it's not something that you'd ever show kids now mm. but maybe back then we had different kinds of minds you know we weren't quite so you know people didn't expect us to be so mm. infantilized maybe I don't know well it's one of 
there were quite a few of those imported series that were basically just talking about the Cold War. Yeah. The height of the Cold War, because the, the other ones I remember, there was, I think it was Argentinian Oscar Keener and the Laser, which is about a kidnapped scientist and a boy and a goose and a laser went wow. to try and find him. And, you know, that... <laughs> That was. I remember watching that. That wasn't long after what really freaked me out on the news was Georgi Markov, the Bulgarian broadcaster, yes. being stabbed with a poison-tipped umbrella. Yes, that's so right. you know that it wasn't that fantastical. This sort of thing. I mean, I'm not saying a boy with a goose as a sidekick was happening in real life, but you know that sort of the sinister shenanigans were going on. And there was the legend of Tim Tyler, which well, Martin Ruddock talked yeah. about when he was on this, where he sold his laugh to a multimillionaire. That's didn't right. He? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was a kind of again, that was a very sort of sinister idea for kids that you know basically you're trading your future you know every possibility yeah. that you might have to be happy you're trading it for something that you're getting here and now yeah and it's as a, as a, as a metaphor for mm. anything that involves any kind of business transaction where you're signing away yeah. rights yeah. I mean, this is obviously written by someone who'd had a contract with the music mm. industry at some point presumably I don't know but no but Steel City the secret of Steel City was and remains to this day something that I can remember and given that I haven't seen it from that mm. day to this and that the things that I remember the power that that stuff has on you when you see it when you're sort of like in your um, you know 9 or 10 or 11 whenever it was it came out I think it was on in sort of like 1980, 81 something like that I just seem to remember it sort of coinciding with me starting secondary school and there was a, a, a kind of feeling in me that things were changing and mm. certainly world events were cer- were certainly kind of like you know there were all kinds of stuff going on at that point I mean the, the Iran-Iraq war and the invasion of Afghanistan and stuff like that was you know and the Cold War was still very much part of everything and to, to, to realise that you know you're watching television shows that were coming from the other side of the Iron Curtain that are basically talking about the same things but possibly from their point of view mm. you know and were we in the decadent West the steel city to their sort of communist paradise of Fortuna? I don't yeah. know. It's a very interesting idea. And actually, aren't we all just going about our daily lives in you know in search of the same things, really? It's yeah, quite a lesson. Yeah. I think a good good on the BBC for showing it. What I was alluding to earlier was I was once asked to be on a clip show to talk about the secret of steel city and Oscar Keener and the laser, and I thought it was going to be about, you know, that sort of aspect of it. I kind of sort of said, they want to be talking about how bad the dubbing was. Oh, and yeah. I just can't do that because I don't think it was. It no. was they were both narrated anyway. Yes, like you say. Yeah. Exactly, and I, and, I, and I think there's been there's been this kind of uh, you know there's this sort of ironic take on mm. everything now, where everything that happened in the past is something to be picked apart and laughed. Yeah, at. and it's one of the reasons I can't stand those you know Ladybird books that are out now, where they've basically sort of repurposed them and sort of like they're basically sniggering through their hands at a particular snapshot of British history, which if you actually look at the original ones in any detail are far more nuanced and sort of interesting in what they're trying to present. You know, they deserve a little bit more. This is just me sort of, you know, mm. this is me talking. Obviously, you know, there are legions of people who think they're absolutely hilarious and I'm sure the people involved in writing them are mm. lovely people. But for my ears or eyes, mm. they, my entire life, I've tried to live as irony-free as possible. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the things about being into the sort of stuff that I'm into and to an extent you're into is some, some, of, some of it is really hard to enjoy ironically because yeah. you miss the point of it you know some of it you're supposed to be consumed by with a passion and it's supposed to be something that is inspirational and drives you on and the fact i can remember all this stuff about secret of steel Mm. city sort of like you know there's absolutely no way i'd ever want to watch somebody having a snigger at that because mm. it's worth so much more than that. Yeah. You can learn so much about the time it was made and you know yeah. the, the, the ideologies of the people that were broadcasting it, even the BBC, who were, I suppose, trying to do their best to educate, mm. inform and entertain. Yeah. You know, still very Rethian in those days. Well, for your last choice, we're coming up to I've been looking forward to this for the whole show. Somebody from the past that I think we can enjoy a good snigger at. Let's just hear him in action in the early 90s. You say that if the monarchy was not here, it would. it is unthinkable it would not be here because to get rid of it would be... An elephant without a trunk is unthinkable. But sometimes... It isn't an elephant. You say that it would not be a nation if it didn't have a monarch. It wouldn't be an elephant. So a country, a Britain without a monarch would not be would not be would nation. Would not be Britain. Okay, that strange gentleman warbling on about how Britain without the monarchy wouldn't be an elephant. With Mr. Enoch Powell, Andy, what was this? There is a formative moment in my life 
and it's when the goodies um the south africa program was on it's basically towards the the autumn of 1975 and we're on a canal holiday through the leicestershire countryside my mother and father and my sister and i and we're all on this narrow boat called thrush hilariously enough which made me wonder if there were others in the series called things like smirch and spectre i don't know um, or whether they were just named after domestic wildfowl but anyway here we are we're, dr- we're going along the canal and there's all sorts of things on this formative canal holiday which i i, I which stay in my mind like you know they're indelibly printed there was stopping off at this strange grim industrial village in the middle of some fields where you had to sort of trudge through the fields to get to it called fleckney and um getting some fish and chips and there weren't any ordinary drinks there mm. it was all made by this company called furnivals of fleckney <laughs> who had this huge chimney like in something out of charlie and the chocolate factory you know with smoke coming out of it and there was this substance called solar cola which was like nothing else that i'd ever t- it was as though some had sort of like phoned through a description of what coke tasted like to some industrial spying concern and they'd mm. auctioned it off and furnivals had got it and then recreated it from this vague instructions of what it tastes like it tasted nothing like coke anyway that was that motoring further along towards leicester you know things like someone had done an impromptu fireworks display by sticking a load of fireworks into polystyrene blocks and setting them free into the mm. canal and we somehow had to navigate our way through that went under this bridge going into leicester and written on the side of it in huge Huge letters, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> you know, you know, in the sort of lettering that you would you, you would imagine somebody tagging something. Now that sort yeah. of size, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> what impressed me was that it wasn't on the towpath side. Mm. Someone had gone across it, gone across the canal, and written it on the other side of the bridge, balls to Enoch Powell. So as we went through there, I'm sort of looking at it going. Balls to Enoch Powell. Mm. You know, five years old I was. Mm. Funny thing was, I knew who Enoch Powell was. Mm. I knew he was that shouty man who talked an awful lot of rubbish about the European community and the common market and who seemed to have all sorts of daft opinions about people I was at school with. To wit, you know, people who were black or Asian or Indian or wherever they were from. He generally had this mystique about him, like a kind of malevolent spirit. He was Mm. like a a cartoon villain. I mean, he even looked a little bit sort of hooded clawish. Well, I I recently listened to his Desert Island discs, just because I've made the commitment to try and listen to all of the ones that Mm. are on the BBC website. I was actually... He started shouting at Sue Lawley mm. for, he said, misquoting the, you know, the Rivers of Blood speech. And she said, I'm reading from a transcript. And he was almost screaming, you are not saying it in context. I was actually a bit frightened of him. Yes. This, this dead idiot, yes. you know, talking nearly three decades ago. And I was, I was walking, you know, I was listening to it on my headphones. And I was actually quite scared of him. Yeah. But there he was, you know, and... and, and going going along the canal heading up to Leicester which even at the time was somewhere that was that had a reputation for being multicultural because mm. of the textile industry yeah. and bearing in mind in 1975 as we motored into Leicester going along the canal on the MV Thrush we passed by the the, the, the Courtaulds factory which was all sort of like you could see in there and it was all stuff being spun and there's that mm. huge place where the Montfort University now is where it was all industrial and lining the, the, the banks of the, the Royal Mile or whatever it's called the River Saw as you're going up to up, you know, the, the canal into Leicester and thinking that there were more people in the world at that point who thought Enoch Powell was an idiot Mm. and realising that you know I wasn't entirely sure what balls to Enoch Powell meant but I was pretty Mm. certain that the person who wrote it didn't mean it like here's a ball would you like a game of footy with it you know (laughs) wasn't offering him a game of rounders you know Mm. this was this was someone who was basically saying you're an idiot what you say is rubbish it's dangerous you, you, you're talking through your hat and the very fact that earlier that year there'd mm. been the referendum on staying in the European Union and uh, well, the, the, the common market as we mm. have to call it but even then it was the European community and I know it was that because it was written on the ballot paper and I know what was written on the ballot paper because we had the day off school mm. and my dad took me to school when he went and voted and he lifted me up to show me what he was doing and he showed me what he was voting and why he explained to me you know i'm voting that we should stay in the european union because i think it's going to be the best thing for you and he was right 
and I've had an, an amazing career in the music business, mm. working with people across continental Europe, travelling around, DJing, touring, doing all the stuff that I do. Some people say, yeah, but you'll still be able to do that when we leave. Mm. And I go, well, yeah, we, we did it before we joined and all this sort of thing. And generally speaking, they're possibly right. Mm. But we won't be able to do it with the same degree of ease nope. and economy that we can do it now. The other thing I'll say about Enoch Powell is that a few weeks ago, it was brought to my attention that on one of these kind of mod memorabilia websites where mm. you can buy things to stick on your scooter or sew on your jacket, there was a, 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 a sticker which quoted the bits of the Rivers of Blood speech oh. and had a picture of Enoch Powell with a Union Jack in the background mm. and it said something like National Hero or something. I was absolutely horrified. And I didn't think mm. that here we are many, many, many years after his death that we'd still be having to say balls to Enoch yeah. Powell and to the kind of people that still think that what he said was, you know. They, they, I, I mentioned it and someone said, he was ahead of his time. He was a visionary. Behind his time. Well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, he, was, he wasn't. He was a nutcase. Yeah. I mean, he, the funny thing is that the older I get, the more right-wing I'm supposed to become, mm. the more sort of like entrenched and set in my ways and things. And actually, the opposite has been true. I think the more, the older I've got, mm. the sort of more, the more inclined I am to want to experience new things and to want to sort of go off and meet new people and talk mm. about, and, and, you know, and somebody asked me, what record do you want played at your funeral and all that kind of thing? I said, well, I don't know. I probably haven't heard it yet. Yeah. You know, maybe it hasn't even been recorded yeah, yet. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that there's still mileage in, in all the stuff mm. that we're interested in you know and there's a lot you know we have a, a lot of common interests mm. in you know in popular culture and science fiction and sort of strange films and stuff like that and so much of what's to enjoy about all that stuff is yet to come yeah you know and and you know and there was someone in the face of enoch power you know who wasn't interested mm. in a progressive future he was interested in keeping things as they were he was interested in winding the clock back mm. to a time when he personally felt comfortable and you know the whole point about sort of moving forward i mean there's this there's this wonderful thing in in one of those days in england by roy harper which is an amazing epic of a song mm. and there's a lovely line in it and he talks about falling in love and he says that half the fun in falling is you don't know where it's to and I think that's the kind of attitude that you need to take with you into the future. I mean, the, the future is this beautiful place that we haven't got to mm. yet. And all the while we keep moving towards it, we'll encounter all these things that surprise us. And anyone who wants to stop mm. us from expanding our horizons, from sort of like going off and indulging in new activities or seizing new opportunities or sort of taking the time out to help other people... They're people you need to avoid. They're not people yeah. you need to encourage. And Enoch Powell, even at that point, represented all of that. And that sort of closed-minded sort of intransigence. And, you know, there are people who say, yes, but he's an intellectual. He was talking, you know, with the Amber. He was quoting sort of whoever it was, some Roman or whatever, talking about the Tiber being filled with much blood and all that kind of thing. And you think, OK, well, yeah, maybe, you know, you are being quoted out of context. But I tell you what, if you start using phrases that can be construed as saying rivers of blood, you know, and you're talking about immigration, you're talking about people having the whip hand over people. Yeah. That's very inflammatory language. And you can't turn around and say you didn't say it when so yeah. many people saw you saying it. Well, and you the, can't complain that you're being quoted out of context. Mm. When what, what context are we supposed to quote it in? Well, Ridiculous. of course, later, as I've just proved with that clip, we have to take him talking about an elephant without the trunk and started crying out of context. So, yeah. well, he was an idiot. He's not an elephant. I mean, but the, the, <laughs> Isn't he, he, you know, he, all he could see things in terms of, you know, he, he, he talked in terms of things that seemingly only he understood. Mm. And if you, you know, it, it's like, well, you know, it's like what we were saying earlier about if you weren't clever enough to appreciate what he was saying, then you were inferior and mm. you weren't worth worrying about. I, I think it's safe to say that him and Patrick Moore would probably have got on like <laughs> a house on fire. Well, I mean, just mentioning that, you've actually given me a great idea for something to play out on because, you know, he might have thought people weren't as clever as him but you only have to look slightly into things I like from the 1969 to the late 70s to see that you know a lot of very intelligent people were having to go back you know the goodies certainly did Python there's that you've heard the Adrian Henry live album where 
He's written an action verse for Baby about having a go about the Rivers of Blood speech. Right, and actually introduces yeah. it by saying, this song's got a new verse about a man who I hope will be dead before he was back <laughs> in the country. There's that, what I believe the young people call the sick burn on that John Cale song, where he says, according to the latest trends, Mr Enoch Powell is a polling star. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but fantastic record by Millie Small, Enoch Power, which I'm happy to say we're in Soho Radio at the moment. Not so long ago, Peter Perfidus did a show Indeed. about the, the, the Windrush scandal. Yes, yes. And I added him on Twitter saying, please can you play Enoch Power and he did and he dedicated to me so we're going to end with that Andy it's been a pleasure thank you thank you to comedy on BBC Radio 3 featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, N.F. Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivan Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio Link Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles and more. More details, timworthington.org. <laughs>